On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with, well, me and Garrett Walden about publishing and our brand new initiative, Hanover Press. So we cover a lot of topics like why does publishing matter? Why is the book still relevant in today's culture? And what is Hanover Press and why do we find it of incredible value and necessity in today's context? We also cover our very first volume that's now available for order and some of the ins and outs and the values of academic publishing and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by Garrett Walden. And we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, if you are brand new to the show, what we really mean by that is just uh, a, a desire to create or cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So that's four or really five C's if you put cheerful confessionalism together that really sort of just like tries to get at the idea of we think that if we want to be serious thinkers, we need to do it as, as Christian thinkers. And where are places in Scripture that t- teach us how to think well? Places like James 3 talks about the wisdom that comes from above, that's open to reason, that's kind, that's gentle, that's peaceable. We think these sort of virtues should um, really encapsulate how we think as Christians. So we should be charitable. We should be curious about what other people think. Um, and curious in the in the right sort of way. The curious in the I, I I care about somebody and I love them enough to understand what it is that they think and why they think it. I think of you know if if you're married to somebody, you should naturally be curious about their lives. Why do you think that? Because that's that's a way of learning to love them well. But on the flip side, we also want to be critical thinkers and we want to be confessional. And what we what we think about and how we think, so we should be thinking from sort of a a ground base of what we think is healthy, sound doctrine that can really help guide us and give us some um, wisdom as we do proper and wise theology. Now, today's episode is going to be a little bit unique. So, oftentimes, almost all the time on our Wednesday episodes, we have an interview. When me and Brandon started the podcast, we had we would sometimes do just me and Brandon. We would talk about different things. And man, hopefully you guys have not heard those episodes. Those are long ago and I probably said some dumb things. But this one is going to be special because if you're listening on the day this episode releases, it's the day we are announcing the the launch or the sort of like publicity of a new initiative from the London Lyceum called Hanover Press. It's going to be the, the print publication division of the London Lyceum. And we really believe it's going to be extremely serve the church and going to be a, a really useful tool uh, for many years, decades, and Lord willing, centuries to come. And so we want, me and Garrett wanted to talk a little bit about the press, but we also wanted to talk about publishing in general, why, why that matters, why it's relevant to to Christians. Now, I know I'm guessing a lot of you guys who listen or girls who listen already sort of have an assumption that books and publications matter. But there are probably some of you that might not have the strongest sort of foundation for why that is the case. So we want to talk a little bit about it, but we want to give you a teaser and give you a little bit of a vision 
for what we think of as Hanover Press, why it's why it's relevant, and who should be submitting uh, manuscripts to us, and and the like. So this is going to be a lot of fun. We'll see where it goes. I guess we can begin with just publications in general. I mean, the the really the, the baseline sort of opening to any episode. We always want to ask, you know, what is it that we're talking about publishing? Publishing books, not necessarily publishing just, you know, online essays, but like actual printed things that come in a book. Why, why Garrett, in your mind, is having the printed book relevant and still still important in a day and age when I can go and get a PDF of everything? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I'll just answer this by a just personal story from my own uh, growth in, in Christ. I remember being in high school. I was a believer. I, I, I was converted. Um, I was attentive at church. I was, you know, trying to pay attention to things my parents said and our pastor said. Um, but I, I didn't really grow a ton until I started reading. And I remember exactly what it was. It was, it was reading C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Um, I had a, had a copy of it. I, I probably found it at a thrift store. And I began to read it, and it really blew my mind. It was, it was a physical printed book. And one of the things I loved so much about it um, was just how it, it took me out of what was familiar. And if anyone has read Lewis for the first time, especially as a growing Christian, he has a way of kind of blowing your mind. And I would spend a long time reading and rereading the same paragraph. And I underlined and highlighted um, and made notes in the margin to myself. And I, I kept that book and, and went back to it uh, several times through my time in high school and early in college. And so th- that was really the, the thing that sparked my interest in theology and doctrine. It really opened an entire world of um, ways of thinking and, and talking about God. I remember reading Lewis and just thinking to myself, you know, I did not know that people thought like this. I didn't know that people asked questions like this. And having that really slow and meditative and reflective uh, read through that with a book in my hand, and really that just having having the the book in my hands physically, it, it became almost like a friend to me. And reading that was almost like a conversation with with an old friend. And I'm sure our audiences are, are are probably the more bookish types, and so they probably know that that kind of relationship that you have with a book. And so I, th- I think as long as um, people are growing in Christ likeness, we have need for good theologically perceptive and challenging books. And, of course, you have some of those books tailored toward um, younger and less mature Christians, and some tailored toward non-Christians, and some um, maybe more on the top shelf in a more academic mode. And so um, we need different kinds of publishers producing different kinds of things. And so I'm really grateful that the London Lyceum is able to throw our hat into the ring and uh, publish things that are consistent with our principles and, and convictions. Yeah. So I, in, in my perspective, or I guess the way I would answer like why publishing in general, you could go to any number of scientific studies, I think that proves that, Hey, the actual printed book is superior. Just like handwritten notes are 
superior to typing notes on your computer. Now, there are obviously advantages you can get from typing on a computer versus handwritten notes. But if you're thinking about like the purpose of taking notes is retention and being able to recall information. Now, I guess you might say, well, if I take notes on a computer, I can recall it better because I can go look at it and access it in different contexts easier. Well, you're going to lose some stuff here. In the same way, you know, the printed book is superior to any just PDF copy of things uh, for a number of reasons. And I think there there is an aspect of it that is just there's an existential delight in my mind of like having an, a book in your hands. And I don't think there's a really way there's there's no real way to like get at that without just saying like <laughs> having a book in your hands. There's something special about it, the way it smells, the way it feels. But there's also like, I don't care what kind of a technological tool you have. You could have an AI set up where you got it on your 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 head or whatever. You're walking around. You can have all the tabs up and you can see everything. You have no way of being able to flip between pages and go back and forth and cross-reference like you do in an actual physical book. Don't care what you do. It's not possible without the book. So there's lots of reasons in my mind of like why a printed book is superior. Now there's there's obviously great value in uh, online sort of things. Um, not saying that there isn't. I'm just saying that the printed book also has value. But I think just from a historical perspective, the book over the how however many centuries uh, has been the powerhouse intellectual tool. That's what, uh, it's not, you know, lectures and training people in, in the moment is very, very powerful. Creating institutions is very, very powerful. But it's the book that can stand the centuries over time. Uh, Aristotle's uh, Lyceum is no longer here. Plato's Academy is no longer here. Yet their books are still here. They're still exerting an influence through their written word, through their written word. And obviously, from a Christian perspective, I think that there's rationale for that. In my mind, I look at, uh, you, you look at Genesis at the very beginning, God is creating by the power of his word. And then we see the, 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 the word was with God. And it, I, there's, you know, there seems to be some sort of intrinsic value based upon the divine nature of the word. And so there's part of me that just thinks that the reason that it's so valuable and so powerful, even though in our visual culture, technological culture that seems to go against that, there's still something that you can't get away from with the power of the written word. And so I think books are just, they're sort of like that key, they're the the foundation or really maybe the capstone uh, of the written word as far as our cultures go. And I I can't help but think of Spurgeon's great sermon on 2 Timothy 4.13. Second Timothy four thirteen. If you don't, if you don't don't remember or not familiar, it's, it's the Apostle Paul at the end. He's just given like directions. <laughs> it's like, hey, when you come, bring the cloak that I left, and also the books, and above all the parchments. And it's just kind of like a throwaway line, but you know, in classic Spurgeon fashion, he's just like, let's tease this out and show you how awesome it is. And it, I, I'm not going to quote the whole thing. You can go look it up. Just Google it. Second Timothy four thirteen Spurgeon. But it, it's just a, it's a fabulous turn of phrase that he's going through here. You know, he's like, Paul has a few books left, uh, perhaps wrapped up in the cloak, and Timothy was careful to bring them. Even even an apostle must read. A man who comes up into the pulpit, professes to take his text on the spot, and talks any quantity of nonsense is the idol of many. 
if he will speak without premeditation or pretend to do so and never produce what they call a dish of dead <laughs> dead men's brains oh that is the preacher how rebuked are they by the apostle he's inspired and he, yet he wants books he's been preaching at least for 30 years and yet he wants books he's seen the lord yet he wants books he's had a wider experience than most men yet he wants books he's been caught up in the third heaven and had heard things which is it was unlawful for men to utter, yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. And so there's just like this wonderful like value that's just in the book itself. And so part of the reason that I think um, publishing is just important, including the book, is because of the influence and, and the sort of like the 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 role it plays in the intellectual life of the person, but also the Christian. So that would be my take on that. I don't know if you want to add anything to that sort of pitch there, Garrett. Yeah, maybe just just one thing. I remember, I think I must have been in high school. I took a I took an ACT prep class, and part of the class there was a guy. He was an older man. He came and gave like a a little lesson on like speed reading, and he was telling us about how he learned to speed read. And how he could read faster than he could speak in his head. And that just has never really made sense to me. How can someone read faster than they speak in, in their internal dialogue? I don't understand it. But for me, I've thought to myself a good bit about that. And for me, the whole point of reading is not to speed up but to slow down. And so I really don't like to speed read or to like skim books. I like to go slow and kind of reflectively through books. And I'm not a very fast reader. And so I think that's, for me, one of the things I love so much about about reading books is how it makes me slow down. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor and I, I preach at my church most weeks. And it's really reading commentaries and other theological books that make me slow down in the biblical text and think about the words and their implications and applications in ways that I might not have thought about on a more cursory reading. And so we're, I'm, I'm helped by the wisdom from ages past and, and even contemporary authors to really to slow down and to think more carefully. And anyone who's ever taught anything knows that when you have to teach something or have to write a lesson plan or write a, an essay, you get more out of it than anyone who's listening to, to it will, will, will get out of it. And so I think also it's, it's good for the rising generation of scholars and, and writers and authors to um, have opportunities to publish because they're sharpening their tools for the benefit of the, of the broader church. And uh, I'm really grateful again, that, that we're, creating a, an avenue for people to um, sharpen those tools and, and edify the saints. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I've always thought of writing for myself as sort of like a way of knowing, a form of knowing. Uh, I don't really grasp a topic until I try to write about it. In the same way as like you try to teach about something, there's just that next step of like internalizing what's actually going on and trying to order it in a way that is coherent, makes sense, and that you can recall. And so, yeah, the book is not only about the end user, but about the producer. We're creating opportunities for people to understand material themselves better and to be able to coherently articulate it in ways that can help people, but it's also helping them. And 
you reminded me, Garrett, when you were talking about the the reading slower piece. You know, I, I have a regular job and I am on video calls a lot, and I have a library behind me. Most of the people I work with, they probably don't even read a one book a year. Um, and so when they see a, a library, they're like, "Wow." It's always the same question. Like, have you read all those books? <laughs> like, no, I've not read all those books. Uh, what do you think? Like, I do not have enough time to read all those books. Part of the purpose of having all these books is, well, yeah, there's, some of them are reference tools, so I'm never probably going to read all of them. I'm going to re- refer to specific sections. But there's also a value in just having things that are motivating factors. You're almost like, I want to eventually get to that. or Or there's... I I've read that one and it it reminds me of a journey that I once took and as soon as I open it up and I see the notes I'm transported to another place. So there's just cool things about books. However, I did want to spend time, enough time here talking about Hanover Press, what it is, why we're doing it, and then talking about the very first volume that we're publishing that you can pre-order today. So if you're listening to the very first day that this drops, you can pre-order it now. You can go to our website, you can do that. If you're listening to it at a later time, you might be able to just go buy it uh, and have it directly shipped to your house immediately. Either way, uh, let's talk a little bit about the press. So what is it? Um, well, I, I think of us as a serious publisher, and naturally, if we're a serious podcast, we've got to be a serious publisher. So it, I think there's two wings of what it is. It's, it's We're publishing books of an academic quality um, that's going to be original Protestant literature, um, as well as classic Baptist literature. So we're not just doing Baptist stuff, though I think Baptist um, literature is very important and is a crucial aspect of who we are and what we do. However, we also want to resource and serve the general Protestant tradition, uh, classic Orthodox Protestant tradition. And so we're publishing original volumes um, in Protestant literature, as well as some classic reprints of Baptist literature, now, the reprints of the Baptist stuff are not just, let me go find an, a book on Google Books and then transcribe it, and then voila, I'm done. No, 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 no. If we do a reprint, we do we want to do it the right way, which means we have an introduction by an expert. It means we have editorial uh, work on the whole manuscript, including biographies of figures that are listed, including... Uh, any updating anything that's uh, that's necessary to the to the text, adding headings and subheadings, and and tracking down the proper bibliographical information and those sort of things that make a reprint actually very useful for the current day and the future. So that's part of what we want to do, and part of what's important to Hanover Press is that all of our titles are consistent that were published are consistent with the Orthodox Protestant tradition. However, they're written by those who are also, they must confess the Apostles of Nicene Creed. So when we talk about being confessional, we think that that's important both um, for you as an individual, uh, important for your local church, but also important for a publishing house like this, uh, that we have doctrinal standards. Now, if you listen to our podcast, we have all manner of guests uh, range across uh, the spectrum. Those who would not be consistent with the Orthodox Protestant Confession, those who would not confess the Nicene Apostles' Creed, though those are rare, uh, we do have those. Um, That's not the case for the publishing house. We think it's very important for a publisher to only publish things that are of great value. And I don't think there's anything of great value that doesn't um, confess the Nicene Apostles' Creed. Uh, it can be intellectually stimulating and it can be worthwhile for a conversation or an episode, but it's not worth spending a year uh, in the production process of creating a book. 
Absolutely not. So there may be other publishers who are interested in that. That's not us. So that's a little bit about what it is. If you want to go check out more, let me just tell you now, go to hannahrepress.org. It's going to take you to our landing page. You're going to see uh, sort of the blurb on what we, what we think of it. You're going to see some of the current and forthcoming publications. And you're going to see several questions. You're also going to see exciting news about the John Gill Project. I've had many of you reach out to me over the last couple of months since we launched our new website. Are I took down basically the publishing page, including the Gill page, because we wanted to put these things together. And so people are like, what happened to the Gill project? I'm like, oh, it's still there. It's just I don't have the website. I didn't want to launch Hanover Press yet, so the, the website page wasn't all there yet. But we've got the Gill project information on there as well, which now Hanover Press will be publishing. So we're very excited about that. We'll talk about that a little bit maybe. Um, but we'll start here, I guess, with the question of why Hanover Press. And in my mind... I mean, there's a little drop down if you go to the website that I put on why Hanover Press, you know, you know, a shrinking market of Christian books and a shrinking market of intellectual Christian books in one that's already overcrowded. I mean, you think there's 20 plus publishers in this space. Why do we really need another publisher? Is this just something to do something that you think, you know, you you don't have any context for what's actually going on in the real world. And no, 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 we think there's actually great value uh, for a press like ours, and there's a need for it. But before I talk about those needs, I think of just why publish books as a Christian as a matter of stewardship. If you want to make sure that healthy, wise ideas live beyond you, you have to write them down and publish them. Oral tradition only goes so far and ends up getting warped. You need to write your stuff down in books if you want to have an impact long term. If you want to serve those who are after you, after you die, you need to think long term. You can't just think short term and, if, you know, I do social media stuff or whatever. That That's going to perish. Well, books will perish ultimately too. But books will have a much long, longer lasting life, shelf life uh, than other resources. So I think of it as a stewardship piece. And as I think of stewardship, so why Hanover Press specifically? So we're publishing analytic theology, we're publishing Baptist theology, we're publishing confessional theology, as you'd expect from the London Lyceum Analytic Baptist Confessional. When you look at the publishing landscape, from a popular Protestant publisher perspective, you think of uh, publishers like Baker or IVP or Erdman's or, or others, they are not publishing high-quality analytic theology with any sort of consistency or philosophical theology of any sort. You'll get some here and there, but there's no concerted effort to really do that. There's even sort of a, a pushback against it in some publishing segments of like, oh, you, you said analytic theology, can you, can you like remove that term uh, from all of it? Do everything you're doing, just don't say it's analytic theology. So there's almost like a, a negative perception of this in the, in the publisher's uh, space that we're in, as well as a not, not an interest in it. And we think it's actually very valuable to be publishing this sort of stuff. There's a lot of uh, bright minds that are out there who are doing careful, useful work in the space that's confessional. Um, and we think that those deserve to be distributed widely and published and given substantial, wise editorial feedback. You shouldn't have to go to Oxford to get something of the highest quality published in this space. So we want to do that. But we also think that if you look across the spectrum of, of publishers, uh, popular Protestant ones, almost none of them care about Baptist history. 
I mean, it's just, it's not there. And if they do, they're going to be a small publisher that lacks sort of the quality control that I think is necessary to creating resources that will ultimately last for a long period of time and be useful beyond just one generation. So part of our goal with Hanover Press is we don't want to serve just the current generation. We want to be thinking about future generations and serving them and the resources that we create. I mean, you don't want, don't want to be stuck in just the future. The present is is obviously very important, but you want to always be thinking about those who can you can serve beyond just yourself. And so we think that there's a lack of quality control in a lot of these publishers, um, and not necessarily a fault of their own. There's a lot of people who are just very passionate and want to start things. And they just haven't been trained or formed in the proper ways to understand, like, here's how we build a structure and here's how we make sure that we have the proper editorial oversight on these projects. And so that's a problem. But there's also just you look at the popular Protestants, they don't care about Baptist history. We do. We think it's valuable. We think there's a lot of resources that are out there that need to be put in the hands of church members, that need to be put in the hands of pastors. And no one else is really doing it in the right way that we think is is, is necessary. And so we think, this is part of the reason we want to start Hanover Press. But there's another reason, and that's that if you want to do serious academic theology, most people think, I got to go to Oxford University Press, I got to go to Cambridge, I got to go to Rutledge, I got to go to Baylor or Princeton. And a lot of these are great, but they're either, uh, they don't have any sort of doctrinal standards whatsoever. So a lot of the stuff that comes out might be like Zoroastrianism and theology, and it's like, this is... Why are we publishing this? And it, and you can't really get it in line as a as a conservative evangelical or something. There's no like real space for that. But there's also the problem of distribution and marketing. And so a lot of these older legacy publishers have no concept for the reality that like, hey, some of these books, normal people want to buy and have access to. In their minds, they think only libraries buy this sort of book. So I will price it at $150. And then there's books that a lot of us Christians, a lot of us, you guys who listen to London Lyceum, you want these books, you can't buy them because they're freaking $150. And so we want to make a publisher that says, these methods and understandings of the publishing market are wholly outdated and need to be completely reimagined. We can create the same quality academic material for a price point that is still able to keep the publishing house solvent, but is also actually available and accessible to normal people and not just libraries. Normal teachers at small schools across the country and other places do not have a budget, uh, do not have a line item for books or don't have enough money in their budget. They're barely getting paid enough to pay the bills, much less buy the books that they need to do research and teach. So we want to create a publishing house that says, you know what? That method is outdated and is stupid. It's time we stop charging $150 for books. We need to pub we need to price them at, at a point that is reasonable for people to get. I think of example, I have Richard Cross's Christology and Metaphysics in the 17th century. Really valuable resource for thinking about Christology. That retails for like a hundred dollars. There is no reason that that book production, like it that book. I don't know how much it cost to make. It did not cost $100. It did not cost $50 to make. The reason that they're charging that much is because they think that seven people would buy it and then the 250 libraries that they got in the queue would buy it. And so they're like, how do we make sure that we don't lose money on this volume? Well, we got to price it at this because only the libraries are going to buy it. 
That's not the case. That's that's outdated. That's ignorant. They they just got a uh, got a, a poor understanding of the market. I think the market shifted. The market's changed, and so I think we've got a pulse on this, and we have a, a good sense of what sort of books are relevant and which ones we could create, and that libraries are not going to be the only ones that are going to buy it. So we're not going to just go under because we're losing money on all these things because we're going to invest in it. That's a little bit about the why. I'll let Garrett talk about in his mind what the why is, and we could talk more about the press in particular after that. So just a couple of things come to mind for me. First of all, I'm, I'm kind of a Baptist history guy, and I am interested in analytic theology. I am not an expert in it. But I'm interested, and so I'm always <laughs> looking for ways to understand it better. I'm that person that comes to Jordan every month or two and says, Jordan, can you just explain this to me again like I'm five? What is analytic theology? And so I'm really— Just, just to be clear, Garrett has a publication where he has a formal definition for the virtual distinction using X and Y and Z. <laughs> you you help me with that, too. And so— um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're going to be a place that can be kind of a hub for good analytic theology, and people that are interested in it can, can know where to come. But on the, on the Baptist history side of things, I'm grateful that we're going to produce some um, original monographs. So we're thinking just original compositions uh, of, of books by people who submit the proposals, possibly some dissertations that get published uh, in various topics, um, some edited volumes asking about some particular theme or topic. Uh, also, again, for me, anyone that knows me won't be surprised by this. We're going to do some Baptist reprints, and that really gets me excited. And the reason why is because I have been really blessed to have read a good bit of our Baptist tradition. And there's a lot of people that don't always have ready access to some of those materials. And so, you know, what, what have Baptists historically thought about the Trinity or the Lord's Supper or uh, the Incarnation? What are some uniquely Baptist voices on that? There, there are some, there, there are many people that just wouldn't know where to go. Uh, there's a, there a wonderful database um, called 18th Century Collections Online. Uh, that has a whole bunch of documents, like hundreds of thousands of documents from the 18th century. But in order to have access to that database, um, I, I think a library so pays a subscription to it. It's like something like tens of thousands of dollars per year uh, to <laughs> have access to the database uh, for for students. And so, um, you know, I've I've had I've been able to just explore that database and see a whole bunch of stuff. It's all in there, but it's kind of like behind this really massive wall that nobody else can can get past. And on top of that, they don't even know that it's there. And so, I I really would like to see our our press kind of pull some of those things out from behind the wall and and set them before the public uh, in a, in a way that's going to be attractive and accessible. And like Jordan mentioned, with some helpful context. Um, from people who know what they're looking at so that you can come to know what you're looking at. So at the end of the day, I guess that's my long, long way of saying um, you, you, you can stay Baptist and find a deep sense of connectedness to the tradition and 
we have riches in our own tradition if you know where to look. And now that we have this press, we can actually help you by we're, we're going to be the place where you can come to look. And we've got yeah. some other ideas more long-term in the future about ways we can put some of those kinds of resources in your hands. But, but for now, I think the press is going to be the, the, the best way to get good, good Baptist material into your hands. Because if, if you're not a Baptist, or even if you are, and you're listening, there's probably a lingering suspicion that Baptists haven't done serious theology for the last four centuries. And maybe you maybe you're like, oh yeah, the last 10, 20 years, you know, you see some good Baptists doing some theology or whatever. Maybe you don't think they're doing good. Whatever. There's probably a lingering suspicion that Baptists all they cared about is missions and that's that's it. And they didn't write significant theology. And you'd be wrong. And that's because these books are not available or are unknown. And so part of the reason that we want to bring these back through these reprint editions is because these are actually valuable in conversation partners and can aid, and they don't aid just Baptists, they can aid uh, Presbyterian, Anglican, whoever else, uh, just like I am greatly benefited from the work of Herman Bovink or the work of John Calvin or these others who are outside my sort of like a, a dom- denominational tradition. You could, don't have to be a Baptist to be aided by a lot of these Baptist resources. But I should mention while we're talking about these reprints, that is not all we do. We are resolutely focused on original constructive work uh, for the future. So we are planned to limit our work on reprints just so that you don't ever get the sense of like, oh, well, that's the press that just does reprints because that is not what we want to do. Just, that's not just what we, want, what we want to do. That's a very valuable, important stream of the publishing house, but it's not the only stream. We want to do original work. And so that means that, it, yes, like Garrett mentioned, it might be unpublished revised editions of dissertations, or it might be brand new original work from senior or junior scholars of some sort. So if you want to submit a proposal to us, you can go to the website and you can find out how to do that. Now, I should mention, as an academic publisher, so we're working on becoming a member of the Association of University Presses. One of those sort of baseline criteria is that you have a terminal degree in the field. And so that's not to be pretentious. That's just to be a a simple standard. Uh, You set a simple standard so that no one gets their feelings hurt. Um, However, there are exceptions. If you have extensive publications in the particular area, if you have other compensating factors, then, you know, you can you can make your case that while you don't have a terminal degree, you should be publishing in this area for a particular reason. But for the for the most part, we plan to be publishing uh, those with the proper training and who have spent a serious amount of time thinking about the subject material, so that it's not just a hot take, or it's not just a it's a, not just a, a manuscript that ends up having all sorts of errors because they haven't read all the important literature that relates to the topic, and then that would be a nightmare for us editors having to go through it. But one thing you should think about, if it, one thing that is valuable for Hanover Press is our editorial uh, experience. So we are guided by over 40 established academic and pastoral um, members who are part of our editorial board. One of the biggest things for me when we started the press was I don't want to do this alone. I don't want to do this even with just two or three people. I think it is crucially important 
to have a significant number of experts in a wide range of fields with a wide range of experience with wide ranging publications to help guide the press and to ensure the quality of the material that gets through the front door and that ultimately is published at the end of the day. We want to make sure that there's no, you know, like underhanded friendship deals. We want to make sure that there's no like poor quality that's slipping through the cracks because, well, we've got a volume proposal on X topic and I might not know a lot about that topic. No, I actually have editorial board members who know a lot about that topic and can say that's a trash proposal or that's a really good proposal. And that's a volume that we need uh, currently in today in, in the market. And so we have significant oversight which I think is very valuable. But what that, not just oversight, not just I'm going to click the yes button or click the no button. Uh, it's also going to entail that if you submit a manuscript to us and you get a contract with us, you are going to receive actual feedback on your manuscript. You're going to receive feedback from the editors like me and Garrett. You're going to receive feedback from a blind reviewer, uh, an expert in the field somewhere else. You're going to receive feedback from one of our editorial board members who's an expert in the area. You're going to receive feed, substantial feedback on your work from three separate parties. If you want to go and publish academic material today and you go to various publishers, let's say you go to Whipfenstock, you're not going to get any sort of substantial content sort of feedback on your stuff. If you go to other publishers, you might have one, maybe two but you're not going to have the level of sort of academic university press standard editorial feedback as you'll find with us. You can't find it in any sort of evangelical space besides us. That's part of what I think makes us unique and special is that we value that. We think that editorial work and feedback and commentary and that feedback loop that does extend the process of a manuscript, but it heightens the quality of a manuscript. And I think most people intuitively say, yes, I want that. I want more eyes on my stuff saying, actually, have you thought about saying it this way? Or I think you're really missing something important here. That's valuable. You want that before the book goes to print. You want somebody to point these things out so you don't get it in a book review after the fact from some reviewer saying, wow, I can't believe this dude or this girl missed this. You want that on the front end before it goes to the goes to the actual publication process. So I think there's a lot of value in what we're doing here. And we're looking for original work. We're looking for unpublished edi revised editions of dissertations, which means that there will probably be revisions to your dissertation if you submit it to us. You can't just say, dissertation, done, submit that. That's not going to be published. You're going to need to make revisions to that in order for it to be of publishable quality. So I'm excited uh, for what we've got going on here. Garrett, did you have any more comments just on the press in general before I, uh, we talk a little bit about our very first volume that we're going to be producing? I don't think so. I'm, I'm really excited about the, the, the flow that we have. We have a kind of a whole procedure of um, how the process flows from proposal to publication and uh, all that's there on the, on the website. Uh, that you can see live now. So um, hopefully everything will be easily viewable there. Yeah. And as a, as a note on the, the process flow, I think if you've published a book, there is a significant gap in sort of project management and transparency among a lot of publishers. And that's just because a lot of editors or different people are really good at editing stuff, but not really good at managing projects. 
And so there's a lack of transparency and consistency on timelines, expectations, those sort of things. And so we've wanted to be really clear and upfront. This is what our estimated timelines are for each step of the process so that you know and have an expectation for what it's going to take to get your book from manuscript to published book in your hands. I think that's really valuable, important for authors to have a good sense for that. Now, I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about our very first volume uh, from Andrew Fuller that we're going to be reprinting. So naturally, you, you, we launched the press. We wanted to have something that you could say, this is the sort of quality that Hanover Press is expecting and wants, wants to publish in the future. And so we've decided to reprint one of Andrew Fuller's classic texts. I'll let Garrett talk a little bit about it. But I want to mention that, yeah, you could do an original volume to start, but that would take you know, a year, maybe two years, who knows how long to get that through the door. We think it's important to have Hanover Press in front of you today so that we can start fielding original manuscripts. And so the the quickest and easiest way to do that is to begin with a reprint. So keep that in mind. We're not just a reprint publication center, but it is a very valuable and important thing to us. So Garrett, talk to me about why Andrew Fuller's volume here is so important, why it's not available for me to go buy in any you know, usable con form now and why we think that people need to go buy it today. Yeah, that, that's a, a, a great uh, kind of segue into this. And so if you're unfamiliar with Andrew Fuller, Andrew Fuller was a particular Baptist pastor in England in the 18th century and early 19th century. He was born in 1754. He dies in 1815. And I would say that Andrew Fuller is, I, w- I would put him in like the top five Baptist theologians ever. Um, that That's my own rank there. And his book that I think is so significant is called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. And I would put that book as like a top five book in Baptist, his- Baptist in the Baptist tradition. And so why is it so important? Well, Fuller was um, converted in 1769. Um, he shortly thereafter was called to be a pastor, and really his his raising was in a what I would probably just call a hyper Calvinist environment. His church was pastored by someone who basically never made any address to the unconverted in his sermons, and so Fuller is a pastor, and he really doesn't know how to think about the unconverted who might be hearing his preaching, what should he tell them? How should he preach to the unconverted? Can he exhort them to repent of their sins and trust in Christ? In certain streams of Calvinistic thought, that was frowned upon, and that's kind of where Fuller was, and he became increasingly uncomfortable with that. And really, his book, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, is his theological reasoning for coming out of hyper-Calvinism and into what I would just call evangelical Calvinism. And so he was writing this book in the late 1770s. He had basically his manuscript done by 1781. A first edition was published in 1785. And then he did a big revision, and a second edition was published in 1801. And so it, this this book really was was significant both in England and in America, and kind of delivering the Baptist denomination uh, from the kind of withering and freezing effects of hyper-Calvinism. 
it, it was really this book and the theology of this book that stimulated an extraordinary revival in the Baptist churches in England and America in the latter part of the 18th century. Uh, this theology that Fuller articulates here ultimately propels William Carey to become what we know as the father of modern missions when he leaves for India in 1793. Andrew Fuller was Carey's, one of Carey's best friends and helped to form the Baptist Missionary Society. Fuller was the first secretary of it. And so um, Fuller's work on this, on this volume uh, really was a major turning point, not just in the history of the Baptists, but in the history of the church, period, in terms of the, the missionary focus that emerged in the latter part of the 18th century, uh, and other denominations followed. So, really, there hasn't been a, 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 a convenient way to get your hands on Andrew Fuller's book in quite some time. There there have been a few um, reprints, but like Jordan alluded to, they, they really were kind of just taking what was in some of these old PDF scans and sometimes just printing them straight up from the scans, not even transcribing. Sometimes they were transcribed. There's a big, like, three-volume um, set of Fuller's works that this, this uh, book is kind of embedded in there. But there hasn't really been a good standalone volume of the gospel worthy of all acceptation in quite some time. Um, certainly not with like a, a an introduction from someone who is a fuller scholar and with explanatory footnotes that help you uh, along as you're reading the text. And so we've been really grateful to to put this volume together. Um, I will say there there is a set of critical editions of Fuller's works coming out from uh, De Gruyter Press. Um, it's a publishing house in, in Europe, and that's going to be a critical edition uh, of all of Fuller's works. I think it's going to be 16 or 17 volumes, and Michael Haken is supervising that. And so um, what we're trying to do is not a critical edition, but a really good reader's edition uh, that will uh, put Fuller's actual words in your hands and will be a, a more affordable and accessible introduction into Fuller's, uh, Fuller's writing. And so I would say if you're someone who has really never picked up a book from the Baptist tradition, this would be a great place to start. And um, I would guess a lot of our readers might be familiar with Fuller, and um, you might not really have many of Fuller's actual writings on your shelf, and this will be a good one to, to put on your shelf and, and to take off your shelf and read. So I still cannot believe that uh, we have Baptist seminaries that have not required Fuller's book to be read in full at some point in their seminary journey. Now, there's no reason not to have this on the required reading list. Garrett, tell me, though, is, is Fuller influential for just Baptists with this question, or does, is, does this book have greater impact beyond just Baptist circles? Well, I, th I think it certainly has impact beyond Baptist circles. Um, I will say the the, the hyper-Calvinism question really riddled the Baptist denomination and the independents in England in ways that it didn't um, in some other groups and in some other places. Um, and I think there's some historical and contextual reasons for that. Um, however, the, the Presbyterians had to address antinomianism, which was often associated with hyper-Calvinism. And um, there's all sorts of, you know, errors about law and gospel and um, the 
implications of uh, the doctrines of election and predestination and atonement and uh, ideas about the decrees of God. And so there, there have been controversies in various denominations and groups. And so Fuller's book addresses these things uh, in, a, in a particular context. But I will say, you know, in terms of kind of the missionary implications of the book, how Fuller is defending the thesis that um, sinners do have a duty to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, everyone who hears the gospel has a duty to believe uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that means that preachers have an obligation to offer the gospel to the unconverted. And so that really was a, was a catalyst for global missions and evangelistic preaching that really did impact other denominations. So within just, you know, uh, a, a year or so of the Baptists starting this missionary society, there was uh, an independent or Congregationalist Missionary Society that emerged. And then there was a Scottish Presbyterian Missionary Society that emerged. And, you know, within, you know, a decade or so, there was an American Baptist Missionary Society that emerged with uh, Adoniram Judson and, and, and that group. And so um, all of this is kind of the implications of Fuller's uh, theology that he's developing and working out. And so... Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a massively influential book. So if you want to buy it and you're listening to this episode before it is officially released in December, pre-order it on our website at a discounted rate. I think it's like twenty percent off or something plus free shipping. You'll get the copy hopefully before the release date and uh, have it in time for Christmas. So uh, do please do that if you're interested in just supporting the press in general. Obviously, just buy the books. Um, that helps us. You can support us in other ways. You can um, subscribe to our sort of like exclusive podcast content um, or make just a single donation or regular donations to us. Because if you didn't know, doing books the right way costs money. You could go self-publish something on Amazon or whatever if you wanted to and do it for $0. But that would mean that you didn't have professional typesetting. You didn't have a professional copy editor. You didn't have a professional cover design. You didn't have all sorts of things that go into making a book usable and having a longevity and also making it appealing because we want people to actually read it. We don't want just you guys who are like passionate about the stuff that we talk about here on the podcast to read it. We want more people to catch the vision and say, wow, this is really valuable and it can change your, your lives. We want church members to read it. So if, if you're at a church and you think um, you, you have a group that would be interested in reading it, uh, a, a significant, let's say more than 10, you can email me at contact at the com, and I'm happy to work out a discounted rate to give you a bulk order for it so your church can read it at a discounted rate. All that to say, I should mention before we close about the John Gill Project. It's been long awaited, this one volume of Bridge Volume. We are hopeful that this will be published sometime early to mid-2024 is the goal. However, Gill's work that we're doing there is a massive and important undertaking. And we want to make sure the quality is of the highest standards. And so that's why it's been a little bit slowed is because we've been making sure that the quality uh, meets what we would expect. And when we, when you do an abridged volume, there's all sorts of difficulties that come with it because it's not as simple as let me just take everything and plop it right in there. 
you have to make further decisions of what am I going to include? What am I not going to include? Those sort of things. So we're excited about that volume coming soon. You can see the, the sweet cover design we've got on that. It's ready there. You'll see it on the website. We're excited about that volume as well as further volumes in the Guild Project coming forth soon. I'll plan to have the website updated on a regular basis with uh, the, the, the expectations for the new volumes that are coming through that project, when they'll be published and which ones they'll be published, those sort of things. But if you're interested in helping with the, pro with, with the press, you can always let us know. You can email us. You can contact us any number of ways and say, I want in. I want to support this. How can I help? We'd love to hear from you and see if there's ways that we can put you to work to serve the good of the church, to make help us to think more seriously about things, both as Protestants and as Baptists. Garrett, did you have any other uh, comments on just Hanover Press or anything related to it? Well, just to say that um, now proposals are open. If you have a if you have a book idea or, or you'd like to make a proposal, um, and you kind of fit those qualifications that we have for our for our press, we would love to hear from you. And you can reach out to that same email address that Jordan mentioned. And um, there's also some instructions there on the website to to reach out to us. And so uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, there's a full proposal guide on the website. It'll give you all the details on what you need to include what, what and how much of the manuscript you need to have done if you want to submit a proposal, those sort of things. Either way, we're looking forward to seeing these and eventually, you know, as time goes by, seeing more books published. Right now, our goal is to publish four to five volumes per year. Next year, 2024, we'll probably see maybe two or three volumes just because as you get started, there you have to take – Takes six, nine, twelve months to get a volume from start to finish, so likely, in all likelihood, maybe two, three volumes published next year. But every year thereafter, the goal is to do four to five until we can expand to a point at which we can compensate um, our editors and those who are working for the press to where they can devote significant time to it. And if there's a significant interest, we can publish more volumes. So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be publishing more than just five volumes a year. But we have a strict commitment to quality. And so we're not going to just rush a bunch of stuff through the door because we want to publish a bunch of stuff. That's not how it works. I'd rather have things delayed or have less stuff published if it's going to be meet our quality standard. So it's very, very important to us to have the highest level of quality. We think across the board among Protestants, especially in America over the last 100 plus years, there has been a weakness in sort of commitment to academic quality. There's almost a suspicion of it, or there's just a, they're not equipped to do it. And we don't want that to be the case here at Hanover Press. We want to have the highest quality. We want you to think when you read our stuff to say, hey, this is on on par with what I read with Baylor Press. This is on par with what I read with Princeton Press. This is on par with what I would read in Baker or whoever else. We want this to be the highest quality and not to think, wow, this is, this is, um, much poorer than I thought. So we're excited about what we're going to do with the press. Pray for us. Uh, contribute financially if you can. If nothing else, buy the books as they come out because that will support us. And we think these. I think we think we really believe that the books that we publish are valuable. We th every book we publish, we think you should buy and read. And we're going to publish it at a price that you can actually afford without selling your children. So we're excited about it. Garrett, uh, I'm going to give you the last word on anything else before before I uh, close up shop on this. Well, just to reiterate what Jordan concluded there, if you would, please pray for us. Um, we, we do this um, 
for no money. And Jordan's specifically devoted a lot of time to learn some skills that he uh, didn't have before, and he's utilized a lot of skills that he has had before. And so um, pray that the Lord bless the work, and um, we w- appreciate your participation in the, in the work that we're doing. Yeah, and I think really this is the most important initiative that the London Lyceum has launched yet. And I am super passionate about it, and I think there's real, real value here. So I, and I think you probably know, you can probably sense that. You can probably see it yourself. You can probably see the gap. You probably have thought at some point in your mind there's a huge gap in uh, publishing. People just aren't publishing the right sort of stuff. They're, they're publishing stuff because there's a name attached to it that'll sell books, or they're publishing stuff because it's a topic that'll sell. But they're not publishing a lot of this really interesting and important work that's being done. That's just sitting somewhere in somebody's head or sitting on somebody's computer because no one wants to publish it because they think, oh, only three people will buy it. I don't care. I want important, good stuff out there, and I want to make it available, and I want to tell people about it. So come talk to us about your proposals. I'm excited. Buy the book on Andrew Fuller's uh, Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. You're going to be challenged by it. Whether you're Baptist or not, it's going to be useful. So... Until next time, thanks everybody for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And all, as always, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.